learning about your rights and responsibilities in a changing world from some of the top legal experts in the country. You're listening to Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Hi, Joe. Hi, Pam. So today we're doing a live taping of our show for Admitted Students Weekend here at Stanford. Unless you think that this is uh, designed to suck up to you, we often have uh, Stanford students on the show. We've had, I would say, about a third of our shows have involved faculty and students because our students are doing so much amazing and interesting stuff. And Pam, one of the interesting things that students are doing with us is something called the Policy Lab. And that's a course, but it's not a course like I teach a course in basic tax. And then I kind of lecture and I talk with students and so on and so forth. And then we have seminars, we read things and the like. But with the Policy Lab, what we do is we actually work for kind of a real world client and we address a real world problem and we try to come up with kind of a real world solution to the problem. And today we're gonna to talk about a fantastic policy lab on uh, uh, administering by algorithm policy, which is all about AI. And we have two amazing guests with us today. Joe, do you wanna introduce our guests? <laughs> I certainly do. We've got our colleague David Engstrom, uh, a faculty scholar of wide ranging interest, a lawyer, a political scientist. Uh, he, uh, he's going to talk today about his work on the uh, policy lab uh, on artificial intelligence. And we also have Christina Ceballos, a third year student at Stanford who's also uh, pursuing a PhD in philosophy. And she's interested in immigration law and artificial intelligence. And she's going to talk about how those interests coalesced in this policy lab. Yeah, so David, tell us a little bit about how the policy lab works that you ran. So our, our policy lab was a gathering of 25 students. It was actually large compared, in, compared to, to many policy labs. But we were advising a, a federal agency called the Administrative Conference of the United States. This is an agency that has some oversight authority over the rest of the, of the administrative state. And we were advising them on AI use, the use of AI tools by federal agencies. So think the SEC or the, or the EPA or the Social Security Administration. And it wasn't just law students who were in the lab. Is that, I, I think I understand understood from your co-director that you had a number of people from computer science. Yeah, that was, the, that was one of the neatest aspects of the project. Of those 25 students, 15 were law students, and 10 came from the engineering quad. And indeed, nine of them were computer science PhDs, and we even let in one undergrad who was sufficiently teched up. So we had, we had this incredible mix of, of lawyers and, and computer scientists to, to really dig in and, and, and to, in a sense, get under the hood of the, of the different tools that these government agencies are using to understand them better. And of course, details matter in the law, and, and technical details matter in particular. And this allowed us to really um, draw real inferences about what, you know, how, the, how the law should handle these things. So tell us something about some of the tools the agencies you were looking at were we're using. Okay, so I can give you a couple of examples. The, the, the SEC, which as, as you know, regulates the financial services industry in various the Securities ways. Securities Exchange Sur Commission. Securities Exchange Commission, sorry, I shouldn't have assumed that people would know what that is, but this is a major federal agency with a, a fairly vast uh, regulatory mandate, and among other things, they regulate insider trading. Uh, they also regulate financial advisors and various types of brokers, and so the SEC is developing a bunch of tools to engage in what we could call predictive 
targeting of enforcement. So any agency has to figure out who to enforce against and where to allocate its scarce resources. And so the SEC is using a series of quite sophisticated machine learning tools to try to predict who's engaged in insider trading or try to predict who the bad apple investment advisors or brokers are out there in the world. So that's one example on the enforcement side. I can give you lots of examples on the adjudication side as well. There's a, there are agencies like the Social Security Administration, which uh, handles an enormous number of cases. Actually, the, the SSA handles more cases than all of the federal courts combined. And these are benefits determinations, often disability benefits determinations. And they have a huge amount of throughput within the system and, as a result, massive backlogs. There are also enormous disparities uh, within the system. So there, there are um, some judges within the system. They're called administrative law judges. It's a special kind of judge. Uh, some judges within the SSA grant benefits 5% of the time, and others grant benefits 95% of the time. And, and, so, and the people are assigned randomly, essentially, to these judges, correct, right? Correct. So it's clear that. Um, something is driving decision-making other than the merits of the case. And so this is a real struggle for these mass adjudicatory agencies trying to rationalize this process. And so something the SSA is doing is developing a, a, a series of tools that can try to triage cases um, and figure out, say, which are the easy grants and the ideas that you could push those off to, to staff-level adjudicators, thereby freeing up time for the ALJs, these administrative law judges, to spend more time on the more difficult cases. Uh, another example of something that the SSA is doing. They're using uh, a machine learning tool, something called natural language processing, to cluster particular types of cases. And the idea is if you could cluster cases and push them to particular ALJs for a period of time, they would be seeing the same case over and over again. And they could develop some specific expertise and maybe proceed more quickly through those cases. Again, addressing the backlog problem, but also maybe getting to more consistent adjudication of cases. So, so far, this sounds pretty good. I mean, we want to prosecute the bad guys that are doing insider trading. We want to mm -hmm. speed these cases along because everyone that has a case before the Social Security Administration is probably in pretty bad shape financially. Mm -hmm. These, as you say, they're disability cases for the most part. Uh, what, what's, what's the problem with it? So you're right. There's great <laughs> promise in these tools. They bring the promise of more efficient adjudication, uh, uh, fairer uh, adjudication of, of cases. But let, let me give you one example of, of a concern that we surfaced precisely because we had this great mix of lawyer talent and CS talent. Um, if you really look, uh, I think I used this term before, but if you really look under the hood of one of the tools that I described, the one um, that um, uh, Helps to, helps to triage cases by identifying those easy grants, the cases where the agency is ultimately going to grant the case. If you look under the hood, you realize that that tool can only be used for beneficiaries uh, or would-be beneficiaries who file electronically not those who file with pencil and paper. And so it seems very clear that this tool not very clear, but we're pretty sure this tool has a disparate impact on the base of, basis of race and ethnicity. The idea is that black and brown applicants are probably more likely to file with pencil and paper. And so that's a civil rights concern. And again, it has to do with the fact that these machine learning tools can only work on things that are machine readable. Well, one of the things we had a similar case, as you know, in our, in our Supreme Court litigation clinic, um, that we worked on about a year and a half ago, which involved predictive algorithms for dangerousness and recidivism. Mm -hmm. 
among criminal, uh, among criminal suspects and criminal defendants. And one of the problems there is a question about how you most accurately predict. Uh, and one of the things that just all of, the, all of the algorithms are proprietary, so we don't actually know what the weighting is. We know what the different factors are that they put into the algorithm. We don't know how, to, how they weight those factors. And one of the factors they were putting in was the sex of the person who was uh, involved. And normally, if a judge said, I'm going to sentence you to three years more in jail because you're male, that would violate the Equal Protection Clause, because you're not allowed to treat men and women differently. Or if a judge said, uh, I'm going to sentence you to less time because you're female, uh, male defendants would have the ability to object to that. And yet the algorithm will be less accurate if you don't put that in. And I wonder, Christina, you, this is a philosophical question as well as a legal question. What do you think? Um, so I'm in a class right now where we're talking about sort of different definitions of fairness. Um, and I think um, it's with Dan Ho and some professors from um, MSNE. And I think it's- uh, You should say what MSNE is. Oh, uh, MSNE, um, Management Science and Engineering. It's a, a sort of different department within Stanford. Um, and it's also a very interdisciplinary um, class. And we're talking about um, how can you almost like mathematically define fairness? Because um, there's multiple definitions. Um, one of Dan Ho's paper talks about at least three definitions of fairness. Um, I've heard someone else cite 21 definitions of fairness. Um, so it's like even if you're just trying to mathematically tell the algorithm like what is fair, it's difficult because there's a lot of different definitions. And I'm also kind of skeptical of our ability to put a concept like fairness, which is very complicated, just into like pure math. Like I don't, I'm skeptical that we'll ever be able to fully capture like our intuitions about fairness. And it seems another issue that we have with AI is that at some point we might not really understand how these algorithms work. I mean, some of the algorithms are pretty basic in my field, because I know the IRS has used an algorithm for years to decide who to audit, right? That's a pretty simple, that's just like a regression, and there's nine or 10 factors. Top secret, though. Very few people know what they are, and I'm not one of them. But some of these other AIs are very hard to figure out what's really happening. Things like neural networks, it's just a phrase I use. I really don't know what that means. <laughs> My understanding is you really can't get to the bottom of exactly what, what, what the machine is doing. All you know is it's getting kind of really accurate results. This is Stanford Legal. And today we're talking with David Freeman Engstrom and Christina Ceballos about uh, administering by algorithm. Thoughts about uh, thoughts about Joe's question. I could jump in and maybe for the benefit of, of the audience, just explain that at a very high level of abstraction, our, our project um, is about a, is about a is about a very basic collision. So if you think about administrative law, which is a mix of constitutional law and statutory law, um, it's it's about transparency and accountability and reason giving. So the whole body of law is built around this idea that when government takes action that affects our rights, the government has to explain why. And yet you have increasing uptake of these tools by a wide range of government agencies. And these tools, because they're machine learning, or some of them go all the way to neural nets, um, are not by their structure fully explainable. And so you really do have this basic collision with, between this body of law premised on transparency and tools that are by their structure non-transparent. And so that's at a very high level. And, and what's been great about the project is then to pursue that high level collision in lots of different regulatory contexts that have their own logics and their own imperatives. 
And Christina, you've looked at this in terms of uh, border identifications. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, sure. So my group specifically focused on customs and border protection, um, which is using facial recognition just to identify people at the border. And the sort of the logic of it is um, like a passport is like easily faked, um, like a visa is easily faked, but like your face is very hard to fake. Um, and there's also like p photos of faces are everywhere. Like they're very easy to obtain. So from this logic of efficiency, like identifying people by their face is extremely efficient, like an, an extremely efficient way for Customs and Border Protection to figure out who each person is. Um, it also raises a ton of like privacy and civil liberties questions, which I think we should we need to start grappling with. Even before we get to the the kind of privacy questions, there have been some reports that at least so far the facial recognition software is more accurate with certain kinds of people's faces than with others. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, so these are some reports that um, the CS students on our team flagged for us. Um, there's a couple of recent studies that show um, that facial recognition tends to be better on lighter skinned faces and on male faces. Um, and these are sort of um, like, again, I, I'm not sure of the technical details, but a lot of companies are trying to fix this sort of belatedly because like some of the, um, these algorithms, for example, Amazon's recognition, facial recognition algorithm have already been sold, I believe, to like local police departments. And now they're sort of backpedaling being like, oh, wait, we didn't realize that they're biased in this way. And even once you get past that, you were pointing to the fact that there are some other important questions that the law hasn't really confronted yet. What's your thinking on those? Um, sorry, what sorts of questions? So the, the questions about privacy and mm -hmm. civil liberties issues. Um, I mean, like, my initial take is this is something that Congress at least needs to start talking about a little more. Um, CBP tends to operate with uh, very little oversight for sort of a number of reasons. Like, their due process protections like aren't as strong at the border. Like, Fourth Amendment protections aren't as strong at the, at the border. And I think Congress is starting to talk about it, sort of based on sort of a lot of like media reports that have come out recently. But it's something that that shouldn't just be like the conversation shouldn't just be at the border. We should be talking about it like within the rest of the U.S. This is Stanford. Sorry, Joe. Um, this is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with Christina Sabayas and David Freeman Engstrom about uh, administering by algorithm. Joe. Well, I had to jump in because it's also interesting. And by the way, our audience will be jumping in after our break in a while. Uh, Christina, what's going on with the privacy issues? Is it that people are looking, companies are like taking pictures of me, they're buying pictures of me, and they're selling it to law enforcement? Is that kind of effectively what's happening? And is that why I have this privacy concern? Um, so my sort of best understanding of um, what happened with CBP's fa facial recognition algorithm is that um, the Department of State has a lot of photos that um, when you apply for a passport, like you send your passport photos to the Dep Department of State. Mm -hmm. And it sort of stores those photos um, unclear for how long. And then CBP, when it was building its facial recognition, needed a lot of photos. And it just sort of asked the Department of State and for its passport photos and got them from this database. So then they, and that's what they used to train the machines? Um, un unclear to me if they're using them for training or just for, for a different stage. I'm not sort of techy enough to know the details, but I know that the, that the passport photos are being used in some way, and no one 
like I didn't consent to my passport photos being used that way. Yeah, David, could you talk a little bit about how the students from computer science and law interacted and what they each brought to the mix? Mm -hmm. That was one of the both very exciting and very challenging aspects of, of teaching this class. You had uh, a, a very large class, uh, again, by, by policy lab standards. It was a big group, and you had two groups of students from completely different worlds. And so that made it a, a bit of a high wire act. But I thought it was terrific at the, at the end of the day. Um, there were so many great moments that I, I came to refer to as being there moments. So you familiar with the old movie Being There, the Peter Sellers movie? So this is a, I just like to watch. So the, <laughs> yeah, uh, th this this is this is a movie about a, a simple gardener in Washington D.C. who rises to the level of a, of, a, of a presidential advisor because he asks very simple questions, often with garden metaphors that everyone sees as really profound. So you can think of being there as like Forrest Gump before there was Forrest Gump and, and the box of chocolates. And so an example of a being there moment would be in, in, in the classroom, a, a, a law student would say, I think the answer to this question turns on whether the algorithm is a legislative rule within the meaning of the Administrative Procedure Act. And then the CS student would say, yeah, but what is a legislative rule? And the law student would say, exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then the CS student would say, no, seriously, like, what's a legislative rule? <laughs> so it's like, then, it's like the old kung fu, grasshopper, right? And, and, and then we'd have a really rich conversation about what a legislative rule is. It's a, it's a notoriously gray area within administrative law. And we would have to ask the question, so what, what are the features of algorithms in general, but also this particular algorithm that might push it into the legislative rule camp or, or not? And those were really rich and interesting conversations. And that's a kind of legal determination that requires both lawyerly understanding and also technical capacity. And so that was the special sauce of, of, of this class. I mean, and, and you and I also just recently did a panel with in front of an audience of fu tech future lawyers mm -hmm. where we tried to talk about these things. And a lot of lawyers just aren't really equipped to talk about the technical details or to be sophisticated consumers of the technology. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I agree, and I think that's a challenge for law schools in general, and, and, and it's a challenge that, that I think Stanford Law School is uniquely situated to, to meet, and, and that maybe that takes us a little bit into my role as an associate dean. I'm, 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 I'm doing strategic planning on what the law school can and should be doing in this area, and so one of the things that we're, we're planning and building are, are, are things we're calling legal engineering labs, and so these are going to be projects like the ones I've described to you, but there are plenty of other really terrific examples as well. Uh, there's someone at the law school right now who is working on a machine learning tool that can analyze text streams, so think Twitter feeds or subreddits, to try to predict pro se litigant needs. A pro se litigant is someone without a lawyer to predict pro se litigant needs and direct them to the parts of terribly organized local court websites that they might need to bring a claim. And so we want to build more of these projects. We'll be back with more from our guests, David Freeman Engstrom and Christina Ceballos talking about administering by algorithm next on Stanford Legal here on Sirius XM Insight 121. Learning about your rights and responsibilities in a changing world from some of the top legal experts in the country. You're listening to Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. Welcome back to Stanford Legal, where we're doing a live taping for Admitted Students Weekend. Today we're talking with uh, David Freeman Engstrom and Christina Ceballos about administering by algorithm. Joe? And David and Christina, one of the things that Policy Lab does, it actually makes recommendations. So this is something, that's, the notion is going to be useful. And 
you guys made a couple of recommendations and thought about others. And David, start, start us off with your recommendations. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the important findings of the study to this point is that administrative law as currently structured does not do a good job of reaching these tools and providing real legal or political accountability uh, for their use. And, and that's, that's for a bunch of reasons. I can spare you the details. But there will be some review of these tools, but it'll be quite patchy. And when it happens, it will largely be overseen by judges. And you worry that judges won't have the expertise to actually pass judgment on the quality or uses of these, of these tools. And so we are developing a series of prescriptions. This would probably involve some kind of a congressional amendment to the APA, which is the, the Minister of Procedure Act. It's the, it's the governing statute within administration of law. And one idea we have would be a requirement of something we would call benchmarking. And the idea would be that when an agency is considering implementing some kind of an algorithmic tool in the enforcement context, in the adjudication context, what have you, the agency would have to engage in, in, in benchmarking and, and thereby set aside a subset of the cases or of the data that they have and actually analyze it through the old school human analog way and therefore be able to compare what the agency could do without an algorithmic tool to what it could do with an algorithmic tool. And it's, it's a really important idea, I think, because of course the relevant comparison is not whether an algorithmic tool is perfectly accurate or perfectly free of bias, but rather whether it's accurate and unbiased relative to what the agency could be doing otherwise. So it's kind of like almost a randomized control trial. You're going to do it with the with the algorithm, and you're going to do it the other way, and then you're just going to compare results. That's right. That's right. And 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 it, and it's important because the results are what really matter. I think I think it's the right approach because it's the results that that really matter. Um, and it just seems like a review uh, process based on the, say, the, the, the source code. You can imagine uh, requiring that the source code be exposed within a, within a judicial review proceeding. The source code alone may not be enough to make a determination as to the actual workings of the algorithm. It might also require the data. The data may be the problem uh, at, at hand. And so uh, the idea is to, to create a process that actually asks in concrete terms what the effects of the agency's use of this algorithm will be. And that would be the first step, right? Because you, suppose it turns out that the human evaluators and the algorithm are coming up with different results. Does that tell us which, which we should be using? Well, and that could be tricky, I suppose. There's also a, a further question then, which is which set of results is more faithful to the statute? Because, of course, I said accurate and biased, and those are freestanding values. But what really matters in administrative law, frankly, or at least a big part of what matters, is whether the agency is um, showing proper fidelity to what Congress has told it to do in the first place. We have time for questions now from those of you in the audience. So please raise your hand, and Sharon will come around with the mic. Hello. Um, my question is about the implications of um, working and contracting with big tech on these um, technologies and algorithms. I know, Christina, you mentioned Amazon. I'm curious about your opinions there, particularly from um, a privacy and antitrust perspective. Um, I am not a privacy and antitrust lawyer. But um, I guess my opinion about what big tech is doing is um, I think it's complicated because I think sort of tech is sort of waking up and realizing like, oh my gosh, there's all these like ethical problems like with our technologies. And um, so I know Microsoft has sort of an internal ethics review board, which it, it's kind of secretive. Um, um, 
I think, believe Google recently set up an ethics board about two weeks ago, and it was a total fiasco. Like people resigned from the board within like a week. Like it's, the, I think a lot of the a, a big part of the problem is that these ethics boards are toothless in some ways. Um, so I'm I'm glad that sort of the companies are waking up and realizing that there's ethical problems. I do think that you, I don't think it's really the job of companies to police themselves. I think it, the government sort of has to come in and regulate. But that's my very unknowledgeable opinion. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, certain biases and algorithms, especially the face detection ones that are being used. I believe I heard a bit about that, and it was one of those cases where the data just sim- that was being used to train it simply was not reflective of the larger population. It was skewed towards white males, which is why the detection software was better performing there. Uh, so now, with cases like that, where you see people's internal biases and data biases affecting the algorithms, Historically, there hasn't been much of a focus on making that reflective. What are the steps being taken now, especially in cases where the algorithms are being applied in a legal context, to ensure that the process of creating them uh, takes those concerns into account? I'm not a technical expert. I don't know sort of how you get the right data to make sure that your models aren't biased. I mean, part of it will come from within the field, and like sort of fairness and bias research is like an active field within machine learning. And I think also part of it has to has to come with like the government's like putting in place policies. I'm sorry, I can't give a better answer. I mean, one of the other things that's happening at Stanford is the Ethics Center, which is a cross-campus uh, center, interdisciplinary center has started working with the computer science department to make sure that from the beginning of people's training as computer as CS folks, they understand the ethical issues and they understand the legal issues. And so Rob Reich, who's the director of the center, is now teaching a, a, a class that is a basic class for the two-thirds or three-quarters or nine-tenths of Stanford undergraduates who are all taking CS 106. I mean, do you want to say a little bit about that? Because I can talk yeah. about that class actually. Um, I might TA it in the future. One of my friends is TAing it uh, this past quarter, and yeah, it's a class to sort of teach computer science students like, oh, here are some of the ethical implications of your works. Here are some of the things that you should be thinking about. Um, and the class was super oversubscribed and very popular. So I'm, I'm very glad that computer science students are realizing that they should take ethics classes. Mm-hmm. I, I think your question does does raise the issue of of what's the best way to to, to remedy this and try to build real sort of ethical values into the design of these systems. And you can imagine a front-end approach that might be trying to ensure that computer scientists who are doing the coding have a stronger ethical sense of what they're up to. Uh, From a lawyerly perspective, what we have is ex post review for the most part. And so the question is whether you could have back-end legal controls that would force an agency to be more careful in the system that it designs, lest it have its actions voided by a judge later on down the road. So I think they're they're really interesting questions and what the right mix is or how, you know, what the optimal way to go about it would and, be. And we have time for a final question. Okay. I, I just want to uh, uh, point out that we're looking at this like the ethics is getting worse because there's more bias. It could be less bias mm-hmm. because we're substituting one kind of bias for another. I want to go deeper on the last question. Uh, I'm personally skeptical that the primary reason for some of these biases that have appeared in facial recognition is just the databases that flowing into it provide pictures that are leading to these things. Like, um, A, is there something in terms of the coding or just the structure of the law itself that are feeding into these patterns? And then B, what can be done by lawyers in this field? 
I think there's a terrific opportunity for lawyers to be involved in these issues at all levels. I think historically lawyers have led important social, political, legal conversations within our society, and that's been especially true during times of technological change. And so I think just being part of a an important social debate is is, is a way to do it. There's a way to do it litigating. There's clearly going to be a role for litigation in this area, in particular because it's unlikely that Congress is going to do a lot of legislating. You might have noticed they've kind of gotten out of the business of legislating for the most part. And so my view is that a lot of these incredibly important issues within the law and tech space are going to be litigated, not legislated. And so I do think there is still a role for coming to law school and learning as much as you possibly can, both on the law side and on the tech side, and going out into the world and trying to move the dial that way. I also think there are there's an important role for lawyers at the level of systems design. And so that means taking a class like administrative law, a class that I teach, and understanding at the level of institutional design what can be done better. Well, we've been talking to David Engstrom and Christina Ceballos about really AI and the law. And I think the last note which David brought up is the role of lawyers and law students, including all of you in this room, about deciding yourselves and learning uh, how to manage this growing intersection between AI and the legal profession. So thanks for joining us on SiriusXM Insight 121. This has been Stanford Legal on SiriusXM Insight. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online or with the SiriusXM app.